0: Now we can be reading them, and with this being February 14th, I thought it was an appropriate time. We were going to start uh, at the end of the the spring. We're going to go through the wisdom books of the Old Testament, but we had uh, one more week, and I figured why not start and really end until we take a break with the book of the Bible that closely associates itself with Valentine's Day, and that is the Song of Solomon. Uh, just to give you a little taste of what, I think probably the best way to kind of get a taste of what we're dealing with with Song of Solomon and kind of pique your interest, is really for us just to read the first four verses. And uh, so somebody will lay somebody choose and volunteer to read for me the first four verses of the, book of Sol- the Song of Solomon. All right, James? The first four verses.
1: The song of the song, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good anointments, thy name is an anointment forth, forth. Therefore do the virgin of thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers, We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine and upright love thee. All
0: right.
1: So that just I want us to begin by doing that
0: to see like literally how it starts off and how the Song of Solomon is all about. And it really stands out as one of the most interesting books in the whole Bible for multiple reasons. One of those reasons is that the sole topic of the Song of Solomon is marriage love and marriage sexuality. And there is no other book of the Bible who solely features on that. And so the topic itself makes it stand out. And then it also stands out because it's just really hard to understand. If you read the Song of Solomon, you know, if you compare other books of the Bible and say, hey, what's the hardest books of the Bible, just to understand what's going on. Uh, the book of Revelation is going to be up there, but I think the Song of Solomon has a pretty good fight to be just sheerly one of the hardest books, just to go, what in the world is happening in this book? And so, um, because of that, <laughs> we're going to talk today, like we always do, about some of the introduction to the book and then talk about these bits that make it uh, hard for it to read. And for the Song of Solomon, even though it's only eight chapters, there is a lot about it that makes it really hard to read. And so my hope is we can get through it and we can learn about that. And then you'll walk away, maybe with some tools, some ways that you say, hey, if I ever chose to read this book, I would kind of know what to look for. And so I could get something out of it. I kind of know and understand what's going on in the Song of Solomon. So first, let me kind of give you a background of it. The book itself, just to begin with, has multiple different names. And And I'm trying to think, and I don't know if there's any other book in the Bible that has multiple different names other than the Song of Solomon. Some people call it the Song of Songs. Some people call it just the Songs. Some people call it... The Song of Songs is a way of saying the best song. So Some people use the best song for the Song of Solomon. So we don't even really agree on what to call it in our Bibles. The uh, Song of Songs was a way, like I said, of saying, hey, this is the best song written. And so that's why uh, some people say that. Some people say Song of Solomon because it's a s- poems that include Solomon in it. When you get down to When it takes place, the topic and the events that are happening in the Song of Solomon are supposed to be around Solomon's lifetime, which is about 1000 B.C., about a little bit earlier than that, 950 B.C., that kind of stuff. And so you got to think like really old kingdom Israel type era. This is where we're at. And we don't even know exactly who wrote it. There's two predominant theories that conservative Christians have. One of them is that it is anonymous, that we don't, in other words, we don't know who wrote it. The very first verse says uh, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, at the NASB. But in the Hebrew, that phrase, which is, could be translated, which is about, not which is written by. And so, uh, equally translated. So some people are like, well, maybe it's a a book that's about Solomon, but not a book that was written by Solomon. And some people think it's anonymous. For me, I feel like the more traditional view is true. I take that Solomon did write it, and it's one of the books that he was written. People argue that Solomon couldn't have done it because, um, y'all get a guess, why do you think some people feel like Solomon couldn't have written this book? There's one reason in particular people give said there's no reason no way Solomon can write a book about love always in No that was always <laughs> had too many people to love that that's what it is um I don't I've written down how many but he had hundreds of wives and concubines and so the one reason that, that people give that Solomon couldn't have written a book like this. They say, How could somebody that had hundreds of wives and concubines really know what true marriage love was like? Mm-hmm. And I I still <laughs> prefer the idea that Solomon wrote it, but he wrote it early in his lifetime when he was still very faithful to the Lord and had not accumulated that sort of wives. So you can almost look at it as he didn't even listen to his own advice that he wrote. That's the, well, the way I view the Song of
1: Solomon wisdom yeah
0: agree I agree totally with that that you can see there's wisdom in the in the okay. book in fact it's usually listed among the wisdom books and he's said to have authored most of three out of four of those so I agree with you. I think the wisdom in the book kind of lends credence to the fact that Solomon also wrote the Song of Solomon. So um, the first question we have to ask ourselves is what type of literature are we even looking at when we see the Song of Solomon? And uh, what do y'all think? If, if the Song of Solomon is a book, but what do you think, what type of book do you think it is? How would you categorize the Song of Solomon. Poems? Say what? Poems? poems. Yeah, it's it's poems. You can definitely yeah, tell yeah, that book in true. thirty-one chapters and in, in, uh,
1: thank you.
0: In Proverbs. Yeah. Proverbs has thirty-one chapters. Song uh, of yeah. Solomon. Proverbs, has eight. Yeah, I'm
1: saying Proverbs. Yeah, yeah. Love song. Say what? Love. With love
0: songs. Love. Yeah. Their poems are like love poems. So one way to look at it is, is it is wisdom literature that we talked about. The other way to look at it is it's love poems. And they're not exactly the love poems we would write today. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all have tried to read through Song of Solomon, but if you do, they would not be the type of love poems that you would probably want to give to your wife today. <laughs> um there's stuff about them that today, we would like that. Like, he compares the wife's teeth to the fact that she basically has all of them. You know, that's probably not something you want to say to your wife. Boy, you're beautiful because you have all your teeth. You know? <laughs> you don't, we don't really do that anymore. <laughs> so even though it's a love there's there's aspects of it that we don't describe people that way and that makes it foreign to us. What you have to realize while you're reading it, though, is even though it sounds very odd to us, these love poems, that that was actually exactly the way they wrote back then. We have examples of love poems from Egypt. We have love poems from old Babylon, and they sound very similar to the Song of Solomon. And so even though to us, the descriptions and stuff sound odd and it's not something we would use in a Hallmark card anymore. Back then that was just the way they wrote and we kind of have to accept that and try to see it through their eyes instead of looking at it through the way we write love poems today.
1: Can you imagine getting something about your teeth in a Hallmark
0: card? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, it, that was a uh, that one was is interesting. But you got uh, then I think, you know, back then, baby, you know, they didn't have dentists back then. So somebody having all their teeth probably was something you wanted to point out to them, you know, that they had all their teeth. And so that's kind of the first messy bit when we talk about the Song of Solomon and what makes it difficult is it's a love poem, but it's not love poems like we would write. And the realization that you have to have while you're reading. Is that even though it's not love poems you would write, this was exactly the way they did it back then.
1: And it would not have been
0: unusual to them, even though it's very unusual to us. The second messy bit we got to get over is how to actually understand what Solomon is trying to teach. So that that would be the question, be like, what exactly is Solomon trying to teach us? What tool was he using to teach us? Uh, Again, assuming that Solomon wrote it in this interpretation issues, what interp- What interpretation method are we supposed to use when we read the Song of Solomon? And of all the books in the Bible, besides probably Revelation, there has been more theories and more thoughts and more debates on what tool we're supposed to use and what lens we're supposed to use when we look at the Song of Solomon than any other book in the Bible. Because think about it. I mean, if you read the gospel, you're like, okay, this is a story and it's a historical story. It's about real events. And you know what it is when you read the gospel. You read, you know, Leviticus, okay, okay, this is Old Testament law. And I know what this is. I know how to understand Old Testament law. Song of Solomon is just not that clear. What was Solomon, in my opinion, actually trying to do to teach us stuff? And so there's three predominant, uh, really four predominant theories on what he was doing. And I'm ranking these in order of horrible interpretation and don't recommend at all. But some people still believe them, so I gonna mention it, to what I actually think is happening in Song of Solomon. So to me, the worst one that's out there, but some people believe this, and I don't know how they do, is they believe that the Song of Solomon was not written by Solomon, but is older than that, and it was actually a part of a pagan ritual. Because there are nearby pagan rituals where a female deity and a male deity would get together, and when they got together, that would produce fertility for the land, if I can say it that way. It would make the land fertile when they got together, and those pagan rituals, they would act that out, and they would have homes read during that time. And so some people say, well, this is like that, but the Jewish people kind of incorporated it into their theology instead of it and left all the pagan stuff around. I'm not even sure I need to argue against that theory on why I think it's such a terrible idea. I mean, any idea that says that the Jews borrowed a pagan ritual automatically gets thrown in the trash in my belief. But people do believe that, so I'm going to give it out to you guys. The second one um, that's a little bit better, that's a modern, more modern idea, is that it's a drama or play. Essentially, there was, in about 600 B.C., Greek plays that um, were spaced out about as long as the Song of Solomon is. And they would usually have three main characters. We'll talk about that in a second. And so the Song of Solomon in this view is a play with acts. And there's an actual plot or story that happens in the book. The reason I don't like that theory is, one, nobody knows what the plot is. Nobody can agree on what the story is in the Song of Solomon. So that makes for a terrible play. (laughs) Secondly, there's no examples of the people in the ancient Near East doing that. It was just in Greece. So even though Greece was doing that in 600 BC, nobody else was. And that's why I don't think that was a very good idea. The third way people have viewed this, and I think this one has something to it to a degree, is allegory. Allegory means that everything in the book is symbolic for something spiritual. So when you read what's happening, you have to think what spiritual thing is the book trying to convey? And this is actually the oldest and most widely accepted view of Song of Solomon. The Jewish people still today believe that the Song of Solomon is an allegory describing God's relationship with Israel. And many Christians throughout history have said that it's an allegory of Christ's relationship to the church. Um, So much so that in early Christian history, it was the official view, and if you had any other view of the Song of Solomon, you were looked down upon. That's how strongly they felt that it was an allegory where everything is symbolic about God's love toward his people. And I'll admit, I actually think that there's something to that. I think that, I, I absolutely believe that there's parts of the Bible, when we look at Song of Solomon, that we're supposed to see God's love toward his people in some way. But I think there's more going on than just allegory. And so the last way to look at it is called the literal view. And that means that you just take it at face value what's happening, that it's a love poem. And in the literal view, the Song of Solomon is a group of love poems describing marriage love and marriage sexuality. And that's just what it is. And that's what I think is probably really the best explanation because you're just taking the poem at face value. That's, what, in my opinion, what they meant to be taken as especially when compare them to the fact they have copies or um, similar poems in their era in other places. So why do you guys think that, even though I would argue that we really need to read it at face value, that for the most of Christian history and Jewish history still today, people have shied away from that and wanted to view it more as an allegory of God's love towards people. Why do you think people have shied away from a literal understanding of what's happening in the book.
1: It talks about in you know, other parts of the Bible that we are the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something?
0: Yeah. We'll actually read that verse. That's next.
1: not a message. not what you buy yeah. at home? Yeah. That's something that you two share as a couple. That's what Christ wants us to be with you. Yeah. And as believers.
0: Yeah. And I think to watch you read that passage of Ephesians 5 in a 2nd. But there is precedent saying, hey, God, Christ's relationship to us is similar to a husband's relationship to his wife. And I do think that's one reason, you know, Christians especially have historically gone that direction with the Song of Solomon. Why else do you think people have tried to avoid the literal understanding of the book and thought of it more as an allegory of spiritual things?
1: Well, because it wouldn't be canonized if it were... That necessarily would it? because it's you know, like Esther? Is uh, I was just trying
0: to go to his God's name. He's mentioned, I saw at least one time. I know he's mentioned one time in there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think for some of it is uh, people have couldn't believe that there could be a book with the nastiness, as James put it, uh, in the Bible like that, and it'd be literal. They're like, how is that literal? How can there be a book like that in the Bible? Uh, and we're not going to read the worst parts today, but trust me, it's it worse than what we are going to read today. And I think that's people have struggled with that. And we'll talk about what the benefit is to look at it as a literal thing and what we miss out on if we don't see and read it literally like I think we should.
1: But that sexual relationship that's kind of at subject. Yeah. Yes. Everybody does it, but nobody wants
0: to talk about it. It's less taboo today than it used to be, which it probably contributes to the fact that today more people are real willing to do it literal. But even today, you know, people still cringe a little bit about, even though it's even within the context of marriage and the world. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's, it's a subject people want to talk about happy things and what they got to look forward to, it, not the death and destruction.
0: Yeah, uh, you don't get much you don't get any death and destruction in no, this book. I, I
1: wasn't meaning that it's in that book, but yeah. I'm just meaning it, it's not a happy subject, so to speak.
0: No not a typical subject that you talk about in the Bible. But, right. right, yeah, that's right. So we talked about you know the the problem that it's a love poem but not the way we write. We talked about how people can't even agree on what it means. The third problem we have to overcome is how many main characters are actually in the book. And you wouldn't believe that this actually is an issue, but people, we can't even agree on how many main characters there are in the Song of Songs. Um A more recent view is that there's three. This is particularly people that think it's a drama or play. So the three main characters are the woman, and then she has for her, actual lover, who's a shepherd, and then she has Solomon, and Solomon actually plays the antagonist. He's the bad guy in this view, and so in this view, in the three-character person, it's all about Solomon trying to get the woman away from her actual love, which is a shepherd, and this is a more recent view. The problem with that view is not only is it recent, but you have to divide up Who says what in the book because it's not like there's speaker tags saying oh Solomon says this your Bibles might have to have that but that's the Bible translators putting it in there in the Hebrew they didn't have speaker tags you have to decide who is talking when on your own and it's really hard to decide okay is this Solomon is this the shepherd is this the woman it gets real complicated the more traditional view and my view is that there's just two, it's Solomon and the woman. And in this view, Solomon's the good guy, he's not the bad guy. And um all the places that it's the man speaking, it's Solomon when it's the woman speaking, it's the woman. It's not as nearly as complicated to figure out who says what. Uh, but it's amazing, like I said, when we talk about the Song of Solomon, that it's hard. I mean, how. Can you imagine reading, like, a gospel, and you don't even know how many people are in the book? That's where we get when we get Simon of Solomon. Like, we can't even agree on how many people are in the book. Um, so if you're keeping tally of where Michael Mills stands, Michael Mills takes it as being more of a literal uh, interpretation. He thinks Solomon wrote it, and he thinks it's primarily just two main characters making Solomon the good guy, not the bad guy in the book. That's where Michael Mills stands. So, the fourth messy bit then is, what is going on, what's the structure, what's the flow of the book? Does it have a plot, like a narrative, or does it not? And if it does have a plot, what is it? And if it doesn't have a plot, then what's going on? And this is again, incredibly hard for us to know. And people do it. There are people, obviously the play group, that um, think that there is a plot. And for a long time, I thought so too. Um, That something's going on, and as you read the Song of Solomon, there's an advancement in the plot until you reach a happy ending in chapter eight. And um people, and for example, I'll give you uh this guy. This is the plot, and this guy said, he said, The woman is in Solomon's harem. Uh, This person believes inside there was three people. That next, Solomon seeks to woo the woman. Third, she rejects Solomon. And then finally, the woman is reunited with her shepherd, True Love. For him, that's the plot of the Song of Solomon. So I I think, you know, obviously there's a possibility. These are respected people that think that um, the other idea is there's not a plot, that it's just separate love poems similar to the Book of Psalms, and they are connected more thematically with the center poem being the most important poem, and the center poem would be, let's see if I got it, um, chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1. That would, since it's the center poem, that's the most important poem. And uh, most people that believe that, like me, that it's separate poems and not a plot, I uh, think that middle part describes more of a wedding scene. Chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1. So. In this
1: N-A-N-S-B, in mm-hmm. this week, it's all broken down. It says the torment of separation. There's a groom passage, then a bride passage, then a chorus. Yeah. Then back to the bride, and then the another. Yeah, there's like
0: there's like it, parts of Song of Solomon that mentions the chorus. It's almost like there's a group of people they talk to, and that group sometimes speaks. And we know it's a group because the. The verbs are in the plural. So we know it's a group of people speaking and not one person. This would call it friends. Friends, friends yeah. He,
1: she, and call it others. Yeah, others.
0: So if you view it less as a plot and more as separate poems, you get something like this. Uh, the first poem is chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 7. And it's a poem about mutual love and desire. And then chapter 2, verse 8, the rest, the rest of chapter 2, is an invitation by the young man to the young woman. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, is um, a dream or a story about a woman's search for her lover at night. And then chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1, is that centerpiece that I said describes a wedding day and wedding night. Chapter two, five, verse two through chapter seven, verse eleven, is another poem about a woman's nighttime search of her lover, and this is one of the reasons I think there's not a plot because the outcome in chapter seven compared to chapter three is completely different. So that's why I think it's two separate. There's not supposed to be a plot. It's just two separate poems that are on a similar topic. Yeah, slideshows, and then you have chapter 7, 12 through 8, 4, which is the young woman's invitation to the man, so it's flipped from earlier, and then finally, the rest of chapter 8, starting from verse 5 to the end, is closing words about mutual love and desire, so that would be an outline, for example, of somebody like myself who doesn't think there's a plot, who thinks it's just separate poems. Uh, put together with the centerpiece being the ready so how do you think um, you have to make a decision if you're going to read it you know is it going to be a plot and is it going to work going to be unconnected poems how do you think your decision affects the way you understand what happens in the book
1: If you read it with in mind that there's a plot, then you have to consider all eight chapters, one story. Mm -hmm. Versus their individual poems that were just a collection. Yeah. That may or may not be the same story that happens over the course of a few years or a few months. Mm -hmm. It's something that is just (laughs) in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so if you think of it as a plot, you almost have to connect the chapters together somehow and relate them to one another. Yeah, for a theme that's thriving through everything. And it's especially different if your plot involves three people and Solomon's the bad guy, because then you have this extra, some of the words that would be taken positively, in my view, would be taken as negatively if it was, Solomon saying it, and you think Solomon's the bad guy. So you, you would read something, and, and it would be something you're like, oh, no, that's bad, because you think Solomon's saying it, and Solomon's bad. So that would completely change the way you would look at that passage, if you think it that way. What's the religious experiment? What's the religious what? Purpose of this. That's a great question, and we're about to— we were actually going to go to that next. That's a good transition. So I phrased it a little differently. I said, what should you look for when you're reading this book? But like you said, in other words, what's the religious purpose of having a book like this in the Bible? Uh, And I'll throw that question out to y'all first. What do you think is the benefit or the purpose of having a book like this in the Bible? Why would God put it in there? Why would God
1: want love poems in the Bible? God commands the Bible. Yeah, he does. It so. also teaches that we find our highest fulfillment in the unconditional love of God. Mm-hmm. You're reading that? <laughs> yes.
0: <sir>. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's talk about that before we run out of time. So first, you have to realize that the Song of Solomon is a commentary on God's ideal picture of marriage, love, and sexuality that reflects back on the original marriage, which is Adam and Eve. So you have to keep the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in mind, which also explains a lot of the uh, agriculture and nature imagery. Because it's connecting back to the Garden of Eden and that first marriage that had no sin. And so let's actually, let's read those keys so we are reminded that. Somebody get Genesis 1, 27, and 28. Who wants that? Genesis 1, 27, and 28. All right. And then somebody get Genesis 2, 20 through 25. Who wants that? All right. Thank you, Joyce. Trees in the old verbs. We're gonna be jumping around throughout the Bible because what the Song of Solomon pictures the Bible other places says explicitly. So we're going to go to some of these explicit statements.
1: So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and flood the earth and subdue it. They rule over the fish of the sea and over the bird in the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. All
0: right, and then Joyce. Uh-huh. This is the, like a zoomed in, more detailed version of what happens in Genesis 1. Yeah, 20, and 20, 25. 25.
1: He
0: gave names to all
1: the cattle and to all the fowl and the air and to every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found in happening for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam who slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave with his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they
0: were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. All right, so Genesis 1 27, 28, and then the zoomed in, uh, more detailed story in Genesis 2 20 through 25 talks about this first marriage of Adam and Eve before sin ever entered the world. And one of the big words, phrases, is that they were naked and they were not ashamed. So what happens is in Genesis 3, you know, the serpent comes, he deceives Eve, sin enters the world. And ever since that, God created marriage, God created love, and God created human sexuality, and they work perfectly in God's design, the design we see in the Garden of Eden. But when sin entered the world, Satan messed up all three of those. Satan messed up marriage. He messed up human sexuality. He messed up everything about that. And so when you read the Song of Solomon, what you get is you get this is God's picture of what um, the goodness of marriage can be if it's done God's way, the Garden of Eden way, without the sin and stuff. It's the it's an idealistic Photoshop version of marriage and human sexuality. Because of that, it teaches us several lessons for today, uh, and we are running out of time, so we can't read all these passages, but the first of those is you see the... The goodness in that humanity was created both male and female. You know, today, just like it was in Paul's day, Romans chapter one, people like to blur the lines between men and women and say that there's not as many differences or that you can jump back and forth and there's just not a separation between men and women. But the Song of Solomon corrects us in that. And says, hey, there is a goodness and there is a blessedness that comes when men and women are fulfilling their God-given roles as men and women, as distinct uh, genders. And so that that is one thing you see from the Song of Solomon. Secondly, you see that love is a positive thing. And so um, we won't read that passage, but uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, is a beautiful passage about love. And so as you read it, you can write down, this is a micro-tip, write down all the way that it describes the, the blessing of human love and how good human love is, done God's way. The third thing it teaches us is that human sexuality is good and a blessing if it's done the right way, which is in the context of marriage. So not before marriage or outside of marriage, but inside the context of marriage, not only was that created by God, but it's blessed by God, and it's good. And that's the Song of Solomon. And that way, we should be glad, because how many verses in the Bible are there that talk about uh, sex, and it's in the negative, like, don't do that. There's a lot, isn't there? Uh, it's, it's all over the Bible, these prohibitions on what we can't do. And so if you were missing the Song of Solomon, all you have is these negative ideas of human sex and sexuality. And so you, God puts in us a book that says, hey, in the right context, it's not bad. It can be good. And it, it's a positive example to combat all the negative examples. And so um, as long as we connect it within marriage. And so somebody read chapter 7, verses 10 through 13 for me. Chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. What's that? I told you I was avoiding all the, the real graphic stuff, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> that you're going to get stuck to something that you don't want to read. Okay, 13,
1: yeah. 15, 13. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let's go out to the country. Let's spend the night in the villages. Let's rise early and go to the vineyards. Let's see when the vine has grown and its buds have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all delicious
0: fruits, new as well as old, which I have saved for you, my beloved. So a beautiful passage about two people talking about going somewhere. Mandrakes were aphrodisiacs back then. So it's there's a little like innuendo there by mentioning mandrakes. Um, and then we learn about the vitalness of, um, like I said, keeping human sexuality in the context of marriage, that premarital sex is bad, sex outside marriage is bad, and that's several places in this book. So, somebody read verse chapter four, verse twelve. I got three; they're all one verse. Chapter four, verse twelve. Who wants that? John. the
1: guardian
0: my sister. Not found A fountain sealed. Yeah, that's the way the end of it goes. And then somebody read chapter eight, verses eight and nine, at the end.
1: Okay. We have a little sister, and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister in the day that she If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battle of sword And if she is a door, we will enclose her with the and Yeah, so
0: that, those are brothers talking about their little sister, and it's pretty clear what they're talking about, and so when we take the literal view, it's what we get from the song of Solomon and the benefit of it is the beautiful picture of God's intent for love and for human sexuality and for marriage. And it's to come back to the negative, because if you don't have a positive, then you think it's all bad and we get you know touchy about it, but it's to show the the value. And the, really the, it was a God given blessing to humanity for those kind of things. Um, And the last thing it does show, in my opinion, uh, is it does show the love of God for his people as well. Because just as we love our spouses, um, God says that he loves us even more. And this is the passage that James was referring to, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, where Paul says that marriage is a mystery, but God created marriage to be a symbol of the way that Christ loves us. That just as the husband lays down his life for his wife, that Christ laid down his life for the church, and this is the wife who respects and loves her husband, the church is supposed to respect and love um, uh, the Christ. And so you do see the value of taking it beyond our human relationships to see the love Christ for us in the Song of Songs. So We're way past time, and I knew we would be. There's just oh man, it's just such a hard book to describe and get through in like 30 minutes. But is there any questions or comments before we pray? Why the infidelity in, in, the, in the book in the story? There's not infidelity in the Song of Solomon. I thought she had. Another man or what so in the three yeah, in the three character view, Solomon tries to get her to marry him and she rejects him So there's not infidelity, um uh, it's an attempt to get her to join his group of women and she rejects that in favor of the poor shepherd. That's the three character view that I don't I don't believe in, but yeah. So in the, in the view where it's just Solomon and the woman and Solomon the good guy, then there's no infidelity. I mean, there's no infidelity either way, but there's definitely not infidelity that way. Does that make sense? i get part over there from uh, chapter 3. It's, uh, uh like, uh, Solomon's love is
1: looking for him. He, I, he's, uh,
0: women mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah yeah you can definitely see why some people view um uh, Solomon as being more of an antagonist in the story. Well, let me pray and we'll close out starting next week we're going to start a new series we're going to be going through the bbs lessons which are awesome this year by the way and uh, a series that i would do even if it wasn't bbs so you don't want to miss those five lessons that we're going to be doing it talks about the proof and the arguments that our culture makes versus what the bible actually says and this shows these five beliefs our culture holds and how that conflicts with the five things that Bible says. And it's a really good series. So we'll be starting that next week and do those for the next five weeks. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here today, Lord. Thank you for this book uh, that you've given us, showing the positivities of love. and, Lord, I pray that uh, that you would just uh, bless those that are here, God. And uh, as we have this Valentine's Day, Lord, we know that we have several in our church. Church family, God, that are uh, still hurting from the loss of their own loved ones, Lord. And we pray and lift them up and pray on this Valentine's Day, God, that you would give them peace and health. And, Lord, for those that are in our church, God, that uh, are married and uh, today, God, that you would give their marriages strength and healing and blessing, God, that to would forth to them. And, Lord, I pray that they would be the marriages that you call them to be. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much, that you died on the cross for us and help us to be people that live sacrificially like that as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Giovanni
1: mm-hmm. Thank you, Thank you. Sure. Okay. See you